Will you pray with me? Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts together be acceptable in your sight through Christ Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Remember as a child going into a local convenience store that was near our home, and I wanted to take the 25 or 30 or 40 cents in my pocket and buy a little candy to stow away later. And uh, there was a Snickers bar there, which that was a luxury item when I was a kid. You know, you could make a lot more hay with little tiny one penny candies or something. But it said, new size. And I thought, that sounds awesome. And so I bought it. And they weren't lying. It was a new size. It was the same price as the old size, but it was smaller. <laughs> it was truthful, it just was, and I, I think that was the first time I started to suspect that people who were selling me things were um, selling me things, you know. Um, and uh, we all fall prey to it. But we see this word new, and I think we've all maybe grown a little bit jaded by it, just a little bit suspicious, new, improved. It's different. It's somehow better. So what are we to do when we come to the end of the Scriptures, when we come to the last book, to the book of Revelation, and to the vision of John of Patmos? And as it unfolds before us, we get to the 21st chapter, and he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. What are we supposed to do with that? Do we embrace the vision, trust the vision, suspect that the vision is uh, something different? We can be forgiven for standing in this world where we need as many of the five senses as God will allow us to have just to apprehend the world, to understand it, to encounter it, to experience it. We can be forgiven for uh, being a little uncertain about what's coming next. John is trying to share with us his understanding of how it's all going to be, of what is still to come. And as we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, it's an unfolding vision in which there are descriptions of uh, the indescribable in heaven and a simultaneously description, uh, a description of what is taking place on the earth. So there's a there's an action in heaven and a corresponding reaction upon the earth. And we follow these, these sort of split-screen identity, watching the earth go through its final judgment, while at the same time exhilarating in the visions of heaven, of the Lamb who was slain, who is worthy to unroll the scrolls, of the one who sits on the throne, of the elders who stand around the throne, and the creatures who hover over the throne, and, and all of the angels, and all the multitudes in heaven singing the praise of Almighty God. It, it's an exhilarating picture. And at the end of it all, there's a cataclysmic battle. It begins on the earth, but it involves all the spiritual realm. And in the end, uh, the devil and his minions are... Uh, at war with Michael and the angels of heaven. This is apocalyptic language. This is, uh, this is the kind of language we use all the time and forgive in each other. Uh, 
But for some reason, the church has chosen to take as literally as possible. Um, and apocalyptic language was not meant by the author to be taken literally. My mother-in-law, when she could still drive a car, uh, swore up and down that on the dashboard of her car there was a parking angel. And as many times as I rode into downtown San Mateo or Burlingame with her, she would whip into the parking lot, and there, within the first three spaces, the parking angel with his big orange flaming sword had preserved a place for her. And she just pulled in and said, oh, thanks to my parking angel today. And we all give her a pass on that. None of us think that there was a literal angel there. Oh, maybe we do. They're unseen, so we can't tell. But we have this kind of language when we have to describe those moments, which Miss Carol said earlier are God moments. They're just, they're God things. There's no other way to describe it. All of the things come together at the same time. All of our circumstances align, and there is that moment where we just say, this is a God thing. This is wonderful. I am so overwhelmed with the grace of it. Why not give glory to God and give credit to the angels in heaven? John of Patmos is trying to describe something that's coming next. He's trying to say that he's had a vision of how it's going to be at the end of all things. And at the end of all things, those things that are causing chaos, those things that are causing distress, those things that are causing turbulence and destruction in our world are themselves going to be put to an end. Everything you worry about right now, everything, your finances, the status of your employment, whether you'll find somebody to have a relationship with, the health of your children or your grandchildren, the increased population in Southern California that's causing traffic to be a mess, rising carbon levels in the atmosphere, the distress on our environment, all of the things that are distressing us, all of them are coming to an end, says John. They will all be judged and judged rightly, says the author. There are times when all of us will sit there and say, Lord, come as quickly as you can, because this world has earned your judgment. And then we remember that we have a new grandchild, or that we have somebody we want to see, or that we have that one last item on our bucket list, and we're back in the world again. John is trying to help us look beyond the bucket lists and the to-do lists and all the things we have to do and to see that God is making all things new. And because God is making all things new, we're going to have a hard time getting our heads around it. And so he says, I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the, uh, from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, because the first things have passed away.
the new creation, the heavenly city, comes down out of heaven from God. Let this be a word to the church, which is forever and ever again trying to create its own version of heaven. We do it in our books, in our theological writings. We do it in our musings about heaven. We do it in the way we live in the world. We are trying to make perfect the things that are imperfect. Do you remember in Genesis when God began to speak? The Spirit of God was brooding and hovering over the waters. Those waters were, were seen as chaos, chaotic, without structure, without form, without time. Time itself didn't exist yet. And God began to create. And God created the day and the night. He ordered time so that we would have something to measure our days by. And then he carved out of that chaos a firmament, a universe, something that would have order in it. And then he put in that place some dry land to go with the oceans. And then in the next three days of creation, God began to populate the things that he had made. So on the fourth day, God made the sun and the moon and the stars. Now, you're probably going to say at some point in your life, wait, how did God make day and night on the first day? And we, and we didn't have the sun, moon, and stars until the fourth day. Because the function of the sun, moon, and stars is not to give light to our world, but to be the markers of time. Read Genesis 1 again. He gave the sun and the moon and the stars to keep the seasons and the days and the times and the years. That's God's calendar floating around up there. That's how the author of Genesis saw it. That here in this little bubble, in the midst of the maelstrom of chaos, God has begun to order. And but by the way, our lives would be meaningless without time in this world. History is the name of our game. Legacy is what we're all shooting for. And then in the space above the dry land and in the waters under the earth, he gave creatures to populate those spaces. Fantastic birds and flying things and, and Leviathan and all the sea creatures and all the things that swim around in the oceans. And then finally on the sixth day of creation, in the dry land with the vegetation on it, he made the creatures of the earth cattle and creeping things and beasts, all manner of creatures, and finally scooped up a little bit of dirt and in the form of a man and a woman, side by side, in the image of God, he made humans. And then God rested. All of it was meant to be temporary, not eternal. You can see in the way that the author of Genesis 1 writes that he knew how fragile all of it was. Because it exists not by a quirk of fate or by some accidental big bang, but it exists by the very word of God. We exist by the breath and the word of God. We are going to be made perfect by the breath and the word of God. And when we've lived out our lives on this earth, we ask, so what is to come? And John says it will be the perfecting of all things. All that is fragile will go away. All that is fraught with danger and peril will go away. After Adam and Eve disobeyed in the garden and were banished from Eden, 
Life upon this world became difficult. There was grace in it. God said, you will only eat by the sweat of your brow, Adam. But you're going to eat. And when he sent Cain away, after he had murdered his brother, he saw that Cain himself was in fear of what he had done and that somebody else might do it to him. And in the moment of grace, God says, Cain, you're going to wander the earth, but I'm going to put my mark upon you so that my blessing will follow. And the descendants of Cain have come down through the years. And all those people in the histories and the chronicles of this book are descended not from Abel, but from Cain. We are descended from Cain. And it needs to be put right. And it shall be. The sacrifice that makes us right with God was the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross. More than a sacrifice. It is the obliteration of sacrifice itself. In Jesus' death came the end of the need for any other persons or any other blood to be shed ever. Ever. God has healed the world in Jesus. And now the Lamb who is worthy to unroll the judgment upon the earth sits at the right hand of God for John's final vision. A new heaven coming, a new earth, a new city, a holy city coming down, the place of our dwelling. I was talking with Judy this week about the sermon, actually. And we were talking about the image that most people have of God. And I thought, sadly, most of us view God these days as a, as a kind of an old retired guy in the potting shed planting the tomatoes for the, for the coming season or just puttering around the house and doing things, you know, fixing up and tacking up the shingles and, you know, probably has a beard that, Stan, looks a lot like yours. I don't know. Um, <laughs> no, uh, if you found yourself in that trap, easy to do. We like Jesus because he's a cuddly baby in the, in the cradle. And we like God because he's a gentle old man just kind of wandering around. Hmm. What John is saying is something far and radically different. That God isn't a, a piece of furniture in heaven who happens to bring about the end of the world. That God's own self is the end of the world. That at the terminus of all of this, we have nothing left but God. When our sins were before God, we needed a mediator. And here came Jesus, who mediates our sin before God. And as we live in the world, we need the church, which through its means of grace, mediates the grace of God to us in the world. But one day, every last one of us is going to stand before God, and there will be no mediator in between. We will be fully in the presence of God. We will know ourselves as we are fully known by God, and we will know God fully. And in that powerful moment of communion, there will be no need for light from sun or moon or stars or incandescent bulbs. God's own self will be the light of our souls and of our lives and of our very being, we find ourselves at home in God. Nothing else can replace. How do you put words around this other than to say that there is pure love at the heart of God and that God is the end and the joy of all things? And brothers and sisters, we come here every Sunday 
in order to rehearse that moment when we'll be standing before God. I pray a constant prayer for those who come to church hoping to check off the box so that the old man in the potting shed will leave them alone for another week. Who think that coming to communion is something that we're required to do and they don't understand that when we eat the bread and that we drink the cup, we are partaking of God's own spirit and self. By a divine mystery, he is communing with us. That here in these moments together, we have an opportunity to be with God and to rehearse that moment when we will be fully in God's presence forever and ever. We have longed to join the choir and to sing, but we don't feel that our voices can give rise to such beautiful notes. But in that place, every note that you sing, every note will be pure. Nothing that is left of the dross and the difficulty of this world can make it past will be standing before God in purity. This is the vision. This is what is to come. And if I can do nothing else as your pastor, can I make you hungry for that day? Can I begin to instill in you a desire, a ravenous desire to know nothing but God, even in this world, and to prepare ourselves to shed every weight that clings and to get rid of everything that holds us back? until we are fully ready to stand before God, to stand with God, to stand in God. John even speaks of saying that the sea will be no more. And you have to understand that for the people in John's time, the sea was the dwelling place of spiritual darkness, of those demonic forces, but he is also a man in exile on an island. And as he writes to his friends in the church, he's saying, this thing that has come between us, this sentence from the Roman Empire, this isolation, this exile, this sea that parts us for now will be no more. We will be together. I am doing everything I can to avoid telling you what it's going to look like beyond these scant few words. Because truthfully, nobody knows. But I do know what it's like when God gives us the foretaste. We were in a little tiny Episcopal church, Judy and I, newly married seniors at the University of Redlands, Judy had grown up in the Episcopal Church, and we loved the interim pastor who was there. He was doing a great job of just bringing the church along. But it was a, it was a day in early July. It was hot. And some of the people were on vacation, and it's a very small church. You could have fit the entire sanctuary in one side of ours. And the pastor finished the homily and we said the Nicene Creed and we sang a hymn and we got the table ready and then the communion was going to be served. And I was wandering around in my head and I was looking at the stained glass and I came walking up the aisle and they served at the high altar in that church so you had to walk past the choir. 
And something happened in that moment. As distracted as I was and as far away as I felt, all of a sudden there was no choir anymore. I was in an upper room. And as I came close and I knelt down, there wasn't a priest walking down the aisle, but the sandaled feet of a Nazarene carpenter, as real as anything I've ever felt. And I looked up into the face of love and heard the words, my body given for you, my blood shed for you. This is worship. It's as real and as personal, as powerful as you and God are able to do. And it happens to all of us at one time or another. I'm not speaking of feelings or thoughts anymore, but the powerful spiritual love of God for his people. And he loves you so much. Lean into it today. Give yourself to it. Let go of the world. See the end that is coming. Get yourself ready. Because what is to come, what is to come is the best we have ever seen and the best we will ever see. And it is forever. Amen.